Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, an album that burns itself into our collective memory. And today, we will be ambling down to a smoky basement club to revisit Embraceable You, the 1957-1995 album by Chet Baker. Embraceable You was written in 1928 by the Gershwin brothers, two men whose pens kept them booked and busy for most of the 20th century. Ginger Rogers was the first to sing the song in the 1930 musical Crazy Girl, but she was not the last. Some of my favorite versions include this one. Embrace me, my sweet and this one embrace me you irreplaceable you just one look at you and this one inducted into the grammy hall of fame in 2005 my heart grows But there's this one. Bring out the gypsy in me. I love all the many charms. This one was recorded in 1957 by Chet Baker, the title track to an album that wasn't released until 1995. By then, the Prince of Cool was on the other side of glory, after a career spent being brilliant and troubled. Embraceable You, the album, has 13 tracks. Besides the Gershwins, there were covers and others. None of the songs were written by Chet, but they all sounded like they were lived by him. That is to say that there is a palpable personal sadness hanging over every sweep of chorus, every line. Not surprising, given what we know about his life and his struggles. British jazz critic Clive Davis said of the album, quote, that little boy lost persona has its charms, but over the course of an album, the impression is one of oppressive melancholia. But for many, that is the essence of his appeal, end quote. Many is me. I liked that How Long Has This Been Going On wasn't upbeat like originally intended, but sounded like the salty tears the lyrics referenced. I liked that I wasn't sure if him singing I'm gonna love you come rain or shine was actually good news or something to lament. I like how the night we called it a day is one of the saddest openers I've ever heard. I like the mournfulness of traveling light. Richard Bach, the head of Pacific Jazz, purveyor of all things West Coast Jazz, and Chet's label head actually shelved this album, finding it too depressing to release. Was Chet Baker a trumpeter who sang or a singer who played the trumpet? Good question, and maybe one better answered after listening to Embraceable You or by listening to Chet Baker. Either way, he made a name for himself by doing both things well. 
If art imitates life is to be believed, then the sorrow present on this album is in step with what Chet Baker was dealing with. Committing to listening to Embraceable You is to commit to your feels. And his. He was 28 years old when this was recorded. And maybe, being young and dipped in folly, he fell in love with melancholy. Shouts to Edgar Allan Poe. Embraceable You is a heat rock. It is, by Oliver Wong's definition, an album that burns baby burns. It's pretty, and sometimes pretty hurts. Shouts to Bay. But don't let that stop you from bumping it. Prepare to be moved, press play, and invite the little boy Blue to come blow his horn. Embraceable You was the album pick of our guest today, singer, songwriter, guitarist Bruno Major. Just spend some time ruminating around his budding catalog, be it his brand new album, To Let a Good Thing Die, or his stellar debut LP from a couple years back, A Song for Every Moon, or take it all the way back to his live EP from 2014, and you can hear how someone like Chet Baker might have been one of his faves coming up. There's a confessional-like intimacy to Bruno singing, romantic but not maudlin, hushed but not quiet. As Trey Taylor put it in Interview Magazine a couple years back, Bruno makes music, quote, designed to make you cry, unquote. He's a young man, well, at least compared to us, but as he tells everyone on the first song from his new album, quote, I spend my days listening to old soul. We spend our days listening to old soul. By the way, for Spotify folks out there, I highly recommend you check out Bruno's self-assembled Brunes Tunes playlist on there. He's got some Chet Baker sprinkled in, but also everyone from West Montgomery to Mac Miller, Slum Village to Scatman Crothers, Paul Simon to Prince. Our show, of course, is partly dedicated to exploring what people's musical inspirations and influences are, so we love these kinds of windows into people's loves. Bruno Major, welcome to Heat Rocks. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. I gotta ask, how did Chet Baker and this album in particular uh, come into your life? The introduction I had to this album was a funny one. It was when my younger brother got his first car and a friend of ours brought over a, a gift in the form of a CD and it was Chet Baker, Embraceable You. And the three of us sat in the, it's a Volkswagen Golf. And we sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And it was one of those moments, you know, when you listen to an album that's really special and you never forget that first time you listen to it from start to finish. It was one of those moments. My introduction to Chet Baker himself I think probably like a lot of people, it was My Funny Valentine, which is arguably the song that's crossed over into the public zeitgeist more than the other. Mm-hmm. My funny valentine Sweet comic valentine You make me smile with my one of the most influential musicians on my um, personal style of music, especially as a singer. Yeah, absolutely. 
Morgan, how about you? I actually came to know Chet Baker's music through uh, his Christmas album, Silent Nights. I was home from college on break, and uh, I heard this played uh, on the radio. I think it was 94.7 The Wave then. Oh. And I heard this song because I had to keep listening to the radio. Um, a a mm. version of Little Drummer Boy played uh, a couple of songs before this. And I missed the DJ announcing who the song was by. So I just kept listening, hoping that he would you know, come back on, but he didn't. In the meantime, uh, it led me to Chet Baker and Come All Ye Faithful. it uh, at first listen, but I did think it was one of the saddest versions of A Christmas Carol I had ever heard. Yeah. I think similar to you, Morgan, I mean, that the first impression I really came away with from listening to, to Chet, especially singing, is just the kind of inherent sadness to his affect. And, you know, I, I first discovered it, I'm sure, in the 1990s when I was exploring the world of jazz vocalists. And obviously, uh, you know, Chet Baker is required listening in that regard. And mm-hmm. I know this comparison is, you know, might come off in bad taste, but whenever I hear him sing, the first thing I think about is that his voice sounds like what I imagine heroin feels like. Um, not that I would know this from personal experience, but there's something so warm and cool about it, but also distanced mm. and disaffected. And I think I mean, there's a he reason. He did do a lot of heroin on it. He us, certainly so. did. <laughs> It probably is not far off what it what it sounds like. Yeah, what it feels like. if I understand his biography correctly, though, I think his heroin habit came after he had already begun singing. So it's not as if uh, one mm. was influenced by the other, or maybe it went in the other direction. His singing led him led him to to, to H. But um, mm. in any case, I certainly think there's a reason that people often describe Chet as being this very uh, quote you know tragic romantic singer, and that's mm. simply because of how his life went and, and ended. But I think it's because he always sounds like he's wistfully singing about what it was like being in love, but always past tense. It's only after the love affair has has ended. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to share this gem that I found in James, uh, James Gavin's exhaustive 2011 biography of Chet, Deep in a Dream, where he talks about uh, this album in particular, the Embraceable You album, noting that the label Pacific Jazz had shelved it because they found it depressing. And when it finally did come out, a, uh, a British jazz critic named Clive Davis, which I'm assuming is not to be confused with Island Records Clive or Arista Records Clive Davis, I should say. Um, he said of this album, quote, the impression is one of oppressive melancholia, but for many that is the essence of his appeal, unquote. And I, I think that actually captures Chet Baker pretty well, mm. is the oppressive melancholia of his voice. Like a minor lament in my I hadn't the heart left to pray The night we called it a day Bruno, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about about Chet as a vocalist. I have to say that I love a crooner. And I don't know a lot about Chet's training as a vocalist. Mm. But what I do love about his voice is how delicate it is. It may be just how I'm hearing it but the notes sound like they develop and they stay here in his mouth. Mm-hmm. 
that they never go to the throat or in this chesty way of other singers, that there isn't a really heavy vibrato. Not that there's anything wrong with singing, singing it with your chest, but I feel like it stays here. And that's what I like about his voice. Mm -hmm. And um, the other things that I like on his, about his voice that aren't present on this album that I didn't know until I started digging deep was his scat, which I really hadn't heard Oof. as much of it as I liked. And it just blew me away. Mm -hmm. I was holding onto my desk like, and this was like four o'clock in the morning, like you gotta be yeah. kidding me, especially on songs like You Make Me Feel So Young. I think when we think about crooners, we think of, you know, this this heavy, chesty, this full-bodied voice. And that's that's why we ascribe, you know, to them this title of crooner. I consider Chet uh, a crooner just the same. What are your impressions of, of, of his voice? Or what's unique about his voice to you? Well, um, I think Chet, I'm 99% I'm, I'm sure that uh, Chet was a trumpet player before he was a singer. And to me, when he sings, he sings like a trumpet. And the thing that's really fascinating is his use of vibrato. So, you know, when the, you get Louis Armstrong play the trumpet, it's really heavy vibrato. When Miles plays, it's zero vibrato. And Chet has this little flicker on the end where it's like, just a little touch of, you know, and then he's exactly the same when he sings. He sings exactly like he plays the trumpet. And uh, even with his scatting, you know, there's no, there's no way somebody could scat like that who couldn't play an instrument to a really high level. That's coming from a place of, of soul, but it's also coming from a place of deep, deep knowledge. Oh, I, I was reading that he, Chet had said of himself, I don't know if I'm a trumpeter who sings uh, or a singer that plays the trumpet. How would you consider him? I mean, all of my, pretty much all of my favorite singers aren't really singers. Um, I don't consider myself to be a singer. I'm very much a songwriter who, who sings his songs. Um, and when I look at Chet, uh, Louis Armstrong, Randy Newman, you know, these guys, these guys have got unique voices uh, that are their own, but you know, none of them are ever going to be singing alongside Pavarotti. But that's what makes them unique. And, and ultimately, what is a voice? It's, it's a, a method of communicating your thoughts and your feelings. And I don't think you need to be very technical necessarily to do that. And what I do know is that Chet has a voice that is very much his own mm. and it communicates his feelings um, very accurately. I think that your observation earlier about the relationship between how he plays and how he sings is really spot on. And I certainly don't, you know, I'm not a, a big uh, follower of jazz trumpeters. I think I can really only name four, which would be Louis, Dizzy, Miles, and Chet. And, and of those four, only two of them, Louis and Chet, are known as vocalists. But I think what's mm -hmm. so striking about both Louis Armstrong and, and Chet Baker, which, which we've been discussing here, is the ways in which they're singing and their horn playing oftentimes feel very seamlessly blended together. And, you know, part yeah. of me does wonder if because the trumpet in particular, given what is it, the armature of, of how you play it, it does mm. require like exquisite mouth and breath control. So it yeah. would seem to me that those kinds of skill sets might easily translate into how one approaches singing technique as well. Though I think in, in Chet's case, 
I think one of the things that's well known about him is that he had very little formal training. He's someone who didn't mm. know how to read charts. Um, he never composed, which was very unusual for a jazz musician of his stature. So a lot of his ability tends to come from what he developed, kind of what you might describe as naturally, or at least in a, in a way that he just kind of made it up as he went along in a lot of ways. And so the fact that he could have this playing style and singing style that just mm. echoed each other on his songs so beautifully, I think is really, really striking. What can you do What's so striking about Chet as a singer, besides just the qualities of his voice that we've been talking about, is that he used it much less than I think a lot of us realize. And I didn't I didn't know this until I went into kind of a bit of a, a rabbit hole of, of looking up uh, stuff that had been written about Chet and prep for today. But he recorded something like close to 200 albums. I mean, Chet Baker was incredibly, incredibly prolific. But of those, only about half a dozen were actually um, primarily vocal albums. And no pun intended, actually pun very much intended, his favorite instrument was not his voice. It really was his trumpet. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wonder if part of it is, is tied up with the fact that, especially when he first started singing, critics hated, hated, hated his singing voice. Uh, one reviewer compared it to the sound of a boiled owl. And I'm not even sure where that <laughs> metaphor would have come from. Like, uh, how do you know what a boiled owl, owl sounds <laughs> like? Weird, right? um, and so in general, you know, they found it anemic. Um, there's a lot of kind of homophobia and misogyny also that was bred into uh, a lot of the commentary at the time because he was singing in a way that a lot of people read as being androgynous in an era in which that just wasn't mm-hmm. really done very commonly, at least not in the States. And yet listeners and audiences, especially like the teenage girl part of his fan base that a lot of record labels at the time played up to, they loved it. And so there's this kind of interesting dichotomy between him having this, now we consider a legendary signature voice that I think mm. at the time was not received well by people in the music business, but certainly clearly amongst listeners resonated because it's one of the things we know mm. about him, even though, as I've been saying, he really was not primarily a vocalist. I think it's it's much harder to become a household name as an instrumental artist. If you look f- through history, the vast majority of, of, of jazz musicians that you know well, and I even include the ones in modern day, they sing because not many people can connect to a trumpet in the same way that they can connect to a human voice. And it's the same for me. You know, I, I spent six hours a day playing my guitar when I was 18 to 20 years old, 21 years old, worked incredibly hard at that instrument. And I know a lot on it and singing something that I really just picked up by accident, never put any effort into whatsoever. But now when I come off stage, no one ever talks about my guitar. All they say to me is, I love your songs. I love your voice. It's like, because yeah. that's what connects to them. And, right. you know, whilst Chet Baker was undoubtedly one of the all-time great jazz trumpet players, Absolutely. what elevated him into the collective consciousness is his voice. Yeah. I'm curious, do you find that frustrating in terms of, as you were saying, you put all this time into mastering an instrument and it's really, mm. you know, your singing, which was secondary, I guess, in, in some ways in terms of how you approached 
um, your musical career. That's what people resonate, you know, as you were saying, resonates with with the listener. I don't at all because if I'm honest, I, I although I worked very hard on my guitar and I became a very competent guitar player, I never found my voice in the way that Wes Montgomery plays mm. one note and you know it's Wes Montgomery. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix plays one note and you know it's Jimi Hendrix. I didn't have a voice on the guitar in that way, an artistic um, identity in the way that they did. And I loved, always loved words. And I, I, flit, I flitted with the idea of becoming a, a writer of some kind. Yeah. It wasn't until I, I found the, the, the combination of words and music, basically in the form of songwriting, that I really found my artistic voice. Because the magic for me about the whole thing is how a certain lyric can elevate a melody and a harmonic choice to a point of transcendence and how a melody can bring more meaning to a lyric or even a different context to a lyric. That's what, that's what songwriting is. That's, that's my favorite thing in the whole world. And, and I knew as soon as I wrote my first song that that was, you know, what I'm here to do. Right. I wanted to cycle back to something because not to bury the lead about this specific album, because we've been talking about kind of Chet mm. in, in the broader sense. But what's striking about when you chose this album, I mean, Embraceable You ring a bell only because it just it's one of those standards that you just assume that Chet Baker would have sung at some point. But I mm. I had gotten this album confused with the much better known Chet Baker Sings from 1954, which is like the yes, definitive yes, yes. you know Chet Baker vocal album. This is an album that you know, as we've been talking about, it was recorded in 57, but it wasn't released until 1995. And so it's not like yeah. it was a consensus favorite for a lot of folks. I'm very curious as to why, of all of the Chet Baker albums that could be out there to talk about, why was it this one that resonates with you the most? This album was more influential on my as sound and aesthetic choices as an artist than any other. I mean, oh, basically, wow. okay. if, if you got... Chet Baker, Embraceable You, and Jay Dilla Donuts, and just <laughs> mash them together. <laughs> You're not a million miles away from a song for every moon. There you um, go. And I, obviously that's simplistic and reductive, but right, right. I, I, the, Chet Baker Sings has the, the, the feeling of a major label album. It's got strings, it's got huge bands, it's got production, right. it's shiny, and it's, ama- and it's amazing. But this album is so rough around the edges, and it's just an it's electric sparse. guitar... A upright bass and then right. Chet either singing or playing trumpet it's so beautiful and it's like I'm as a fan of Chet you never get the the opportunity to feel as intimate with him on, on a recording as you do in this album and for that reason I don't really understand how anyone could not like it high as a mountain and deep as a river Have you seen the uh, the documentary that was made in what ended up being the last year of his life called Let's Get Lost? Not yet. I mean, I, I feel like no. I should have at some point, but yeah. Oh my God. So you, you have to watch it. It was, it was like somebody followed him around and filmed him and didn't know, but it, was, it then ended up being his last year alive. Right. And it's, and it's Chet and he's sort of, he's this old, old man and he's sad and he's, you know, addicted to, to drugs. And there's a, there's a scene where he's asked, what's your favorite song and what's your favorite lyric? And he's got a cigarette in his mouth and he takes a big sort of melancholy drag. And as the smoke plumes out of his mouth, he says, The smoke builds a stairway for you to descend. 
You come to my arms, may this bliss never end. Awake or asleep, every memory I'll keep when I'm deep in a dream of you. And there's a pause, and then he just says, Nice words. Mm -hmm. It's so sad. But I love him so much. And um, I, I, you know, whatever, he obviously was, you know, he obviously was a very, very troubled man. But in the same way, that intimacy that you get from the from the from the the album "Embraceable You," it's it, this this guy David Wheat on guitar, who's you know his his playing is so simple. He's just describing the, the harmony in a very um, almost twee way on this on this nylon string guitar and a bass, and there's nothing to block you out from Chet and his feelings and his trumpet. It's just the the minimum of accompaniment that you could possibly have. All that. All that you're listening to and thinking about is, is Chet. So um, mm. who couldn't like this album? We will be back with more of our conversation with Bruno Major about Chet Baker's Embraceable You after a brief word from some of our Max Fun sibling podcasts. Keep it locked. Hello there, ghouls and gals. It is I, April Wolf. I'm here to take you through the twisty, scary, heart-pounding world of genre cinema on the exhilarating program known as Switchblade Sisters. The concept is simple. I invite a female filmmaker on each week, and we discuss their favorite genre film. Listen in closely to hear past guests like The Babadook Director, Jennifer Kent, Winter's Bone Director, Deborah Granick, and so many others every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Tune in if you dare. It's actually a very thought-provoking show that deeply explores the craft and philosophy behind the filmmaking process while also examining film through the lens of the female gaze. So, like, you should listen. Switchblade Sisters. Video games. Video games. Video games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. <laughs> In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a brand new podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback as three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Shire. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye! And we are back on Heat Rocks talking Chet Baker's Embraceable You with our guest, Bruno Major. Bruno, I'm wondering, as someone who, you know, your vocal style draws from some of the similar, as we've been talking about, some of the similar kind of affect mm-hmm. that, that Baker uh, tried to imbue in his, in his singing. And I think people oftentimes describe um, Chet singing as being very kind of unadorned, very, not mm-hmm. simplistic, but, but very straightforward in a way and, and effortless, right? Is that he was mm-hmm. not a showy singer. He was not a virtuosic singer compared to mm-hmm. contemporaries. But I think one of the things that has often been said is the more effortless a performance is, is there actually is a great amount of effort and technique that goes into achieving the sense mm-hmm. of effortlessness. And I'm wondering as someone who sings in a kind of a com- comparable style, is mm-hmm. that do you find that to be true? Do you you know is your singing voice something that comes to you very naturally, or is it something that you work mm-hmm. on a lot from a technique point of view, even if that's not mm-hmm. evident to the end receiver? It, it sounds like a, uh, a facetious thing to say, but I really don't like singing. 
I find that singing gets in the way of of itself. Mm. Um, and I, my favorite singers, all they're doing is telling the story with the right melody. Mm. You know, then I, I, I never think about, you know, how much vibrato I'm putting on or, or a run. Like, you know, some, sometimes I hear people cover my songs and they're doing runs everywhere. And it's like, you know, I could have done that, but I didn't. <laughs> It's like the, the, the poetry is important. And in the same, you know, it's the same as when I'm recording a guitar. It's like, you know, I could shred some like Eddie Van Halen tapping on the front of, of, of my guitar on top of my songs. But it would it wouldn't be serving the purpose, which is to communicate the emotion of the song. So Chet is a beautiful example of somebody who who gets the message across. And he and what he's searching for is nothing to do with sh- of the sh- it's nothing to do with the show. It's purely delivering an honest emotional message. And he does that, you know, and what, what is virtuoso? Because uh, one of the hardest things to do as a singer is just to hold a note without any vibrato for a long time, which, you know, he does with a plom. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I would, would personally call him a, a virtuoso singer. But it's certainly not something that he was trying to do. Right. Now the young world has grown old Gone are the tinsel and the gold. I want to ask you a bit about your song Old Fashioned mm. because uh, you sound a lot to me like Chet on this one. What a compliment. Talk about um, recording that song and talk about your mindset going into it. That, fu- that song's a funny one. It's actually one of the first songs I ever wrote. Mm. And when it came to recording my first album, A Song for Every Moon, I already had Easily and Fair With A Friend, which both have the kind of feel to it. And I didn't feel there was any room for it. And um, hmm. so it, it, was, it was left unloved. And then it came around to making the second album and I had been playing the, the song live and it had become a bit of a favourite um, of, of like fans. So yeah, I, I put, it in, put it on the second album and I'm very glad I did. I'm glad you did too. Thanks, man. <laughs> You're very welcome, Morgan. I'll walk you home to your front door. I'll say farewell until the morning calls. I'll be smiling, a bigger smile. It's funny because there is a there's a standard. I'm old-fashioned. I love the moonlight. You know that one. I love old-fashioned things. And Chet sings it. Um, mm. It's beautiful. It's very different to my song. Mm. I'm old-fashioned But I don't mind it That's how I want Well, bringing this back to Chet and his album, Braceable You... We normally ask our guests what the fire track is off of the album, and somehow this album isn't really, I don't know if fire is the right word to describe any song on here, (laughs) but certainly Mm -hmm. I think there are many songs that leave a very powerful impression. So, Bruno, is there a a song off of here that really, really hits you every time Mm -hmm. you listen to this thing? Um, It's very hard to choose because they're very good. Um, I think the title track is, is extremely special. Yeah. I love There's a Lull in My Life. Ooh. 
there's a there's a chord change in there that gets me every single time. So I'll go for those two. And what, I mean, what is it in those songs that really hits you? I I really feel like in the sad songs, something comes out of him. He he, you know, when he's doing "We All Left at Christopher Columbus," when is it the world was round? It's like, yeah, it's great, but he's he's not delivering a part of himself in the way that he is when you listen right. to "There's a Lull in My Life." Yeah. How about you? Well, I'm hoping since we have both instrumentals and vocals on this record, I can pick two fire tracks. So greedy. Um, my favorite instrumental is How Long Has This Been Going On? And although this isn't the only song where he's just on the record where he's just playing the trumpet, again, I have to go back to the sadness. I love the sadness in his play here. bit bluesy and of course this song has been covered a lot and covered by the greats uh, Ella, Carmen uh, and my beloved Shirley Horn but my favorite version is Sarah Vaughn's mm. and uh, it's on her 1978 album of the same name Tell me dear, How long has this How long has this been going on What a kick I, I just <laughs> right Yo, Carmen McRae's got a beautiful one, and Ella's got a beautiful one. And so does Shirley Horn. But there's something about Sarah Vaughn, something about that, that bottom note that mm-hmm. just we- we- wears me out. And I, had, I hadn't heard um, Chet's version of this until prep for the chat, but I was like, oh, man, this is such a departure. But dripping with that melancholy that we're talking about, and I think it's beautiful. My favorite vocal is Forgetful. But you've been forgetful And I've never kissed And it bothers me Forgetful wears me out. It is the sonic representation of the word swoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a way better description of the album. Right? Smooth, romantic, it tugs at my heartstrings, and that's the one that I kept playing over and over and over. And someday, when you are regretful, you'll wish you had tried much less forgetfulness. What about you, Oliver? You know, it's, I think like, like Bruno, embraceable you is, is hard to, to put down. I mean, as someone who loves in general, the, the whole Gershwin songbook, it's certainly, I think one of the mm-hmm. really stellar gems that, that the Gershwins wrote. Um, but especially as someone who had come to this album, never having heard it before, 
you know, that first impression you get from the very first song, um, the night we called it a day, it just lingers. And so it's both the song that I find incredibly haunting and also it provides my favorite moment on the album, at least in, on first impression, which is just how he curls the word moon in the first line because already Oof. I think you get a sense of the essence of what he's able to do with his voice and just the way in which he makes these choices, however conscious or not, and how he sings his notes. There was a moon out in space, but a cloud drifted over its face. And to circle back to something that we've been talking about earlier, just the sparseness and the minimalism of the accompaniment here. It's just his voice and a little bit of guitar, and it's all you need to just have instant mood, right? You don't need like a full string orchestra accompaniment. It all it just takes is two different sounds, but already you're transported someplace mm-hmm. uh, through that. Absolutely. And isn't it wonderful, like, you know, not to belittle or patronize, you know, the, the great sort of jazz quartet setup with a drum and a, and a bass and a piano. Yeah because some of the greatest records that I've ever made have been in that context. But it's so wonderful just to edit the, the setup a little bit and, and play some jazz standards. And suddenly you've got a whole different sonic tapestry to play with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this album wouldn't have, been as, wouldn't have been as unique if it had been a jazz trio in the background. What's funny too, and I don't know if either of you knew, know knew this about the background behind the the making of this this particular recording in '57, but originally uh, Baker was supposed to have been recording with a much larger group. I, I don't know if it was a, a full size big band, but he ended up showing two hours late to the recording session, and it was a mess. I mean, it was so bad that that the producer on on site immediately decided there's no way we can use this. It's just none of it works. But Chet just hung out, and as as people gradually left, it was just left. Uh, you know, whoever remained formed the players on this. And even though at the time they decided, the folks at Pacific Jazz decided that they didn't want to put the album out. You know, this was in a lot of ways a real accident because it's not the album that that session was supposed to have produced. Um, but nonetheless, it's the it's the session that we got. And um, you know, I think the the history of pop music is filled with with uh, fortuitous accidents, and I think. Embraceable, mm. you happens to be one of them. I did not know that. That's, That's a great cool, story. Cool fact, man. Yeah, people should show up late to their recording sessions more often because you never know what happens <laughs> when you when you piss off people and they all they all decide to kind of just bounce. Not that I'm suggesting this for you, Bruno, because I don't want you to piss no, off. Trust me, I'm players, late to but... everything, bro. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about uh, favorite moments. Uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, Bruno, you mentioned the chord change, and I think there's a lull in my life. I mentioned the very beginning of uh, um, the night we called it a day. Morgan, how about you? Do you have a favorite moment on this album? The, there's a lull in my life. It, okay. It's the, it's the vocals on there, and, and how about at the one and a half mark, his vocals start to build, and they change. It's almost like he's grabbing his power. He's pulling it up, and it's just an unexpected change for me. Everything stops but that flame in my heart that keeps burning, burning, oh, 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 there's a lull in my... It's so beautiful. 
Bruno, I don't recall if you've ever covered one of Chet's songs in in your uh, recording Mm. career, but regardless, if you had to pick a song off of here to cover, which one would it be and why? I have covered Chet Baker. Um, I covered on my first album, I did Like Someone in Love. Each time I look at you, I temper's a club. And you know what's really, really, really cool is my the majority of my fan base are between 16 and 24. And I went to Java Jazz in Jakarta just before the lockdown. And I played in front of 4,000 people, the majority of which were 16 to 24-year-old girls. And I played Like Someone in Love, and the entire room sang a 30s jazz standard at the top of their voices. And I was like, this is amazing. I've, like, I've, I've brought something that I love, which, which really not a lot of people of, of that generation are, are probably familiar with and and given it to them in a way that like makes sense and um, it's something I'm really proud of I know what was the second question I've I've been if lost you, in my own solipsism. No, 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 if you had to pick a song off of this album to cover, which would it be? I'm going to go with Embraceable You. Yeah. Uh, it's just I mean that is I mean as they're all great songs, but as you said, like George and Ira Gershwin uh are no slouches when it comes to songwriting. <laughs> yeah, they, so, uh, they did okay. Know, I feel yeah. like <laughs> I feel like I'd, I'd I'd be honored to cover that song to be honest. I love all About you, above all. If you had to introduce someone uh, to the work of Chet Baker using this album as a resource, mm-hmm. what song would you have them listen to first? Yeah, the first song I heard was um, uh, "The Night We Called It a Day." It's the first track, and it just sets the whole album out so so beautifully. So I'm going to go with that one. There wasn't a thing left to say The night we call it a day No, totally agree. It's a, I mean, I don't know what if there was a lot of thought put into the sequencing. I'm assuming there must have been some thought put into the sequencing, but it is a perfect way to open um, mm-hmm. I feel like if you started with the title track, it's a little too on the nose. And Embraceable You would have been a song that I think obviously people would have been very familiar with in that era because so many people had covered it. Um, mm. I don't know if I know of any other version of The Night We Called It A Day than this one because um, it's not it's not to me like part of the standard repertoire that, that people work with. So I like that it has this kind of element of something unexpected. Um, but as I was saying earlier about why, you know, for me, this is my fire track. It's just, just the impression it makes in just the first few seconds tells you, I mm. feel like everything that you need to know or how, how yeah. to feel about it. 
can we call it um, sort of warm ember track? Feels more appropriate. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Bruno, if you had to describe this album in three words, what three words would you choose? Drifting into dreamland. Mm. Very oh, nice. Lord. Nicely done. Indeed. Come to Papa Do. My sweet embrace Before we close out, we always like to leave our audience members with something next to listen to, so something to add to their playlist. Uh, Morgan, do you want to start us off? If you like this album, I think you should stay with Chet Baker and go to Chet Baker Sings. It doesn't get better than this. Blue Note Records, he and Russ Freeman, and I would start with My Ideal and keep going. Maybe she's a dream and yet she might be just around the corner waiting for me for me you know i think about the influences that chet baker had not just in the states but especially uh, abroad and he certainly from in terms of both his singing and playing style had a, a huge impact on people who were part of the brazilian bossa nova movement and you can really, I think, distinctly hear how other singers from Brazil wanted to capture some of that same affect that we've been talking about. And the album that really came to my mind immediately is the self-titled 1973 album by Shao uh, Gilberto that we dedicated a Heat Rocks episode to along uh, with guest Alan Thayer. And just the minimalism of that album, the minimalist approach in, in Gilberto's voice, I think is very reminiscent of the stuff that Chet's doing on this album. So check out that album. And as always, just to be self-serving, then go listen to our Heat Rocks episode about the album. Bruno, how about you? What would you recommend that uh, our audience members check out next after finishing with Embraceable You? Does it have to be a chat album? No, not at all. It can be anything you want. Ooh, okay. Uh, I've got one for you. Antonio Carlos Yobim. Mm. I mean, I, I got into Yobim through his songwriting. Um, you know, God from Epinema, um, Desfinado. Right. So the album is... I don't know how to say it. It's Orfeu de Conciencia, Conciencia, 1956. Uh, yeah, it's got like a, a crazy kind of new wave Picasso front cover. Um, and there's a song called Overture, which is the opening of the album. Okay. It's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. It's like a, It's like seven songs in one. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Bruno Major. As we noted, you have a brand new album out. So 
touring probably a little difficult in the world right now. So how have you been mm-hmm. spending uh, lockdown to the extent that, and again, I don't know what the situation is like in London compared to uh, where we are here in Los Angeles, but are you working on getting your life set together? Like how, how are you keeping busy right now? I had had a, a very intensive period uh, after my first album. We, we finished the first album, went on tour immediately. And then I was making my second album at the same time as I was touring. Um, and we finished the album, had two weeks off over Christmas and I was due to go straight back into to touring again for the second album. And as much as I would have done it and I was looking forward to it and it would have been great, I was feeling a bit burnt out and I was feeling a bit terrified of the whole thing because mm. um, I hadn't written a song for eight months. Mm. And uh, this, you know, this, this lockdown has meant I went home, stayed with my family for two months recalibrated reset and and didn't you know i did as a workaholic i was forced not to do anything and i think you know as much as i wouldn't have wished it on the world and and none of us would have would have wanted it i think we're all probably finding that there are things that we're learning about ourselves and positives to be taken out of a, um, a like kind of lengthy downtime that is such a positive spin i love that <laughs> Well, Bruno Major's new album is To Let a Good Thing Die. Hopefully he will be back on the road at some point in time this year or next to perform behind it. Bruno, where can people find out more about you and your music? Uh, There's this invention called the internet. I think it's going to go a long way. uh, I'm trying it out. I've got a few bits and bobs up on there. Um, So anywhere on there, just type my name in on anything. YouTube, Spotify, Google, I don't know. You know, it's there. They'll find it. It's Bruno Major, and my new album's called To Let a Good Thing Die. Yeah. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.